If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. I often think of humans as this, like we, we're just this walking contradiction. Like the worst of us is the worst of us, like power, trauma, violence, domination that's in our capacity obviously and then there is the best of us we're incredibly cooperative we can be incredibly selfless and generous we're incredibly feelingful like we can feel the environment we can feel each other we can feel the vastness and to me it's a lot is like what is the society and economy asking us to practice What are we being asked to practice through social norms and through how our economic structures and our governance work? In this episode, we welcome Stacey K. Haynes, who's been experimenting at the intersections of personal and social transformation for the last 30 years through the work of somatics, trauma healing, embodied leadership, and transformative justice. She's a leader in the field of somatics, focusing on how it can bring transformative capacity to social and climate justice movements, and help to heal the impacts of trauma and oppression. She's the author of The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing and Social Justice, and Healing Sex, a mind-body approach to healing sexual trauma. I grew up in a family that was very connected to nature. I grew up in the Rockies in Colorado in a very small town and just spent a lot of time in nature and found that really a a place of refuge and a place of what I'd now call spiritual connection for me. 
I also grew up in a family where there's a lot of violence, you know, violence between the adults, violence within the community. I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And when I kind of got to my own breaking point of like, I got to figure something out, I got to heal or, (laughs) or it's going to get bad. I was fortunately in an environment in college where I was also getting politicized. And for me, they just so fell together, even to get help. You know, when I went to the college psych services, they were like, well, you know, there's not that many people who experience incest. So if you want a group, you're going to have to organize a group yourself. Mm. So even to get help, I had to be an activist about the issue and organize a group. And then, then they would run it. But also because I was in an environment where I was learning much more about political history and movement history and feminism and anti-racism and anti-colonialism, I was like, oh, wow, this is a political issue. This is not just a personal and psychological issue. And there were some days when I was like, I do not have the wherewithal or the courage to heal for myself today but I can heal for the people who come after me because that's what people before me did. Like they changed the world and I am benefiting and I'm part of that lineage or that chain of commitment toward healing and toward, toward liberation and and social justice. So in some ways they were just so woven together for me from the beginning. Mm. That's really powerful. Thank you so much for, sharing a bit of your story. This is the first time that we're talking about somatics on the show. So I would appreciate actually if we can start from the very basics and foundations here, as in what exactly is somatics and what does it have to do with our broader socio-ecological spiritual crises? Somatics is kind of a a shift of paradigm and a shift of worldview, especially from the, let's say, the standard Western worldview about how we as human beings change. And it really gets away from the whole mind-body split or the Cartesian view of kind of like the, the mind should control everything. And along with that, of course, is a deep objectification of the body, objectification of nature, objectification of other. So there's this, this beautiful, very short poem by Eduardo Galeano, who is a leftist journalist, um, theorist, Uruguayan. It goes like this. The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising, or sometimes I think capitalism, right, says the body is a business. The body says I am a fiesta. So I love that piece because it gives us a baseline of what somatics means. So somatics, soma, is a Greek root, and it means the living organism in its wholeness. And it's the best word we have in English to really mean the psychobiology and our relationality, or the sensing self, the emotional self, the thinking self, the relational self and how we take action, that that's all one whole piece rather than this inheritance that many of us got about the body as a thing. So somatics helps us understand ourselves in this wholeness 
And it also helps us understand how we change. You've probably noticed, and maybe your listeners have noticed, that just having a new insight does not translate into new ways of being, new ways of action, or new ways of responding instead of reacting. That often when we hit those places of reaction or stress or pressure or even like a new risk, even love can be a new risk, that these very old habits in the psychobiology and the body-mind tend to run the show (laughs) instead of maybe how we want to be or how we want to relate or how we want to act. So somatics helps us understand that and understand how to work with it. Yeah, so I guess to summarize a little bit, somatics really looks at human beings as much more integrated and holistic selves, which stands in opposition to dominant Western worldviews that name and separate, for example, the mind and body and spirit. And I guess I'm curious how this might have been reflected in the broader systems, because I know you're keen on really connecting the dots between the personal and the systemic. So what do you think has been the impacts and limitations of this way of objectifying the body and splitting and compartmentalizing how we conceptualize our whole selves? I know that's a big question too, and there are various angles you could address this from, but yeah, just whatever feels most pertinent for you to bring in here. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, in some ways, to me, it is one of the root causes of the really disaster we're living in. You know, we are in, we are living in climate injustice. We are living in climate collapse caused by humans. And we are living in a level and kinds of inequity that are just so profoundly unnecessary. Mm-hmm. All the inequity serves is, is greed, but it doesn't serve life. It doesn't serve life. And I think this, you know, controlling and objectifying the body, controlling and objectifying the planet as a, a place of resource for human beings instead of as a, a sacred home, you know, Worst case scenario, we're going to drive ourselves and all all large mammals off the planet with that. So I think this deep split and objectification and separation has been a core narrative belief system set of violences that keep inequity or power over systems perpetuating and intact. Mm. And one of the ways that somatics and social justice connect is There's a phrase we have in somatics, which is, we become what we practice. We're always practicing something. And is what we're practicing aligned with what we most care about, right? So part of the transformative work is aligning our our purposeful practices with what we most deeply care about. And that helps to transform our embodiment or transform our soma. That's one aspect of it. But when we back this up and understand social conditions, most of our default practices are inherited from our social conditions. And we begin to learn them and embody them at such a profoundly young age. So if what we're learning, let's say in dominant Western culture, is animals don't have feelings, rocks and trees and plants and the air aren't alive, right? They're things. Or people different than us, we should separate from, right? If we're soaking in all these default practices that are power over practices, 
that are reflected to us through the media, often through our families and communities, through how the economy works. It means we're embodying things that we might not even agree with, that might not at all align with our values, but we're embodying them anyway. So when we look at somatics and social justice, it's like somatics helps us heal and transform the impacts of oppression, but it can also help us transform how we've embodied basically mainstream power over ways of being or narratives that we might not even agree with. And then as social change agents, whether someone's an activist, organizer, movement leader, it also helps us then, it's like, it helps us develop ourselves kind of from the inside out so that we can be and lead and relate in a way that has more and more capacity, but also is more and more aligned with our values. Yeah, this all really resonates with me because I really believe that transformations need to take place at every level and including all that we embody and how we can also embody the values and changes that we wish to see in the world. And with that split as well, I think many of our more dominant cultures place more value on rational thinking than on our emotional experiences. So we've talked before on the show about this sort of cultural gaslighting going on where we're supposed to suppress and ignore our feelings of burnout or exhaustion and healing is healing so that we can keep churning away to contribute to this endless economic growth that supposedly is more important than the growth of our <laughs> collective senses of aliveness. And anyway, it just feels like there's a lot of emotional suppression and contraction. And we are at a time of immense change and loss in many ways, whether the loss of our loved ones too soon to illnesses that could have been prevented, the unprecedented loss of biodiversity as we've known it, the loss of community and really rooted relationships. And a lot of this requires us to slow down and take the time to process and grieve. And yet I don't know that many of us have had the space and time and safe places to grieve. So I wonder if you've thought about the relationship between grief and the cultures that tend to suppress them, as well as more broadly speaking, the impacts of containing grief on our abilities to heal from a lot of these traumas. Totally, and on, on our ability to build a relationship with each other, on our ability to take strategic action for social change, mm. all of those things. Um, I so appreciate your questions. Thank you for being, I don't know, I guess what I'm struck with is a deep thinker, a deep human being. Mm. I just really appreciate Thank what you're you. asking. Thank you, that means a lot. Okay, I'm going to go toward this through talking about somatics a little bit more. One of the things that somatics really understands is that we have this innate ability to adapt. And then we have these core needs that we're adapting to from the very beginning. And we talk about those needs as we have an inherent need for safety, for belonging, right? For being a part of the social fabric, for belonging, and for dignity, or you could think of it as inherent worth. And then of course we have material needs for clean water and good food and education, right? All those pieces. But what's interesting about the SOMA is that it is adapting to try to take care of safety, belonging, and dignity in all kinds of creative ways. We end up calling these conditioned tendencies. We develop these conditioned tendencies or kind of habitual ways of responding or reacting, especially under pressure. 
But part of those conditioned tendencies are also what we're trained into by our social conditions, right? And our kind of community narratives and practices. When we look at something like oppression, violence, trauma, then we also have these automatic survival strategies that try to help us live through these things. And most people have heard about, you know, the fight flight response. And we'll talk about it as fight, flight, freeze, appease, and dissociate. And again, we don't have to learn any of those. Those come with that evolutionary wisdom in our, in our beings, in our bodies, right? But what happens is that through these adaptations, through these survival strategies, we can develop these very deep habits that actually shrink our emotional capacity and habituate the ways that we relate and have us act certain ways, many of which might not work anymore, and not be able to take other actions. And that whole thing can't be changed just by will. It's an embodied set of conditioning and survival strategies that really require that we transform our way out of it. So when I really look at expanding our emotional range, like, first of all, rational thinking is awesome. Analysis is great. We need it. But it's only one form of knowing. You know, as you know, I, I tend to, I'm very interested in death and dying. And I really look at like what the studies of like, what do people say is important to them as they're dying? Mm. And Really, people say my relationships, like who, who loved me and who I got to love. And did I make any difference? Did I make a difference for the world or for my community or for my family? Like those are the things people are coming back to, not, much, not how much money did I have, right? Mm. So this whole thing of having a wide emotional range that we can feel delight and joy and even ecstasy can actually be present with irritation, anger, and rage can process sadness and grief, can let ourselves go, I feel afraid, right? But you let it be an emotion that we can process through together. I just see it as essential in our times. I mean, if we're not feeling, we are going to get so clogged up. And then what we do is we either act out on each other or we act in. There's just no way. <laughs> that, that's what we do. It's predictable <laughs> unless we can keep mending and moving and healing and feeling and kind of mm, letting emotions move and letting those historical survival strategies and habits not be the only place from which we live or make decisions. Right. So it's really important to feel and also listen to our emotions and how they might be guiding us. I recently shared a conversation with Vijay Prashad in which we talked about building societies that are able to scale these small gestures of humanity and care, like checking in on our neighbors, yeah. lending a hand to elders in our communities, bringing foods and medicines to friends or people who are sick. These acts of kindness that I think most of everyone can agree on as being positive and inspiring. Though the question we couldn't really answer, and perhaps there are no straight answers either, but the question I raised was, why is it that most people can get behind these small gestures of kindness, but conditions of scarcity or fear can lead some people to 
open up and revive collective care and organizing in the bigger picture, whereas it might lead other people to put up walls and discriminate and exclude. I get the sense that you may be able to speak to this in more trauma-informed language and perspective, so I'd be keen on hearing how you might expand upon this and just how trauma might put our inherent needs against one another and influence our broader orientations of politics and what is possible. Yeah, totally. I can't underscore how deep these impulses are in us for survival and for Mm -hmm. safety, belonging, and dignity. You know, like there are a couple of feral cats that live outside my house. And it's so interesting, you know, I, I, I put food out for them, but it's so interesting to watch this, this, this one female, like when, when she gets scared, it is amazing to just watch her crouch, her hair hackle, her eyes get wide. And I'm like, right, that's happening deeply inside of all of us. And given that there is, we're living in an existential threat around climate and that we do not have social norms and an economy that bring us together, that are based on interdependence, that are based on the well-being and equality of all people, we're in collective distress. So when I think about the people that really go from like distress and move to collective care and organizing for change. And then the other folks that kind of hunker down, I do not have the answer, but I'll throw out some of my thoughts. I think for some of the folks that hunker down is it's really confusing when trauma and privilege interact. It's like privilege teaches us, right? That I'm safe because I have power over. Like if we look at whiteness and white supremacy, I'm white right? White U.S. born. It's like the training is that it's like, oh, power over what is what gives me safety. And that gets lodged as a, as an idea because it's a lie inherently, but really deep in the nervous system. So therefore, if somehow I'm not in control or don't have some level of power over, I'm endangered. So I, I really think it's very deep what we're trying to pack, unpack internally as well as systemically that really to me what's true is we are safest inside of interdependence right we are most resourced inside of our collectivity i think often they'll talk about this epidemic of loneliness which to me is a result of profound individualism right a culture based on individualism of course we're going to be lonely right but this epidemic of loneliness i'm like What I see in people over and over again is a longing for community, is a longing for we, but a training, a social training that is often traumatized into us that says, I'm I'm only going to be safe with a few people or I'm only going to be safe alone. I think about it sometimes like, like addiction and I'm a harm reductionist at heart. But when we say, let's say alcohol use for someone is starting to hurt them or hurt the people around them, there's still an impulse in their bodies that wants to drink alcohol, even though it's hurting them. And that's sometimes how I think about these survival strategies that are mixed with a domination-based enculturation is the impulses for safety, for belonging, but sometimes it gets turned awry by the social conditioning that says, well, the only way you can access that that is by 
power over or by more isolation and separation. And it's like the wrong solution for the need. Mm. Is that is that making any sense what I'm saying? Yeah. So at least some of the barriers could be a lot of our social conditioning and the stories we've been, the cultural stories we've been exposed to and the norms and values we've been taught and have to unravel and unlearn for a lot of people. Something that you've shared before is that traumatic experiences are never outside of social conditions. Even the most intimate traumas yeah. are so informed by the social conditions, norms, and economic setup in which we live, end quote. Yeah. First of all, I'm curious about this idea that even individualized traumas are collective experiences, perhaps born out of our underlying power over structures. And then also just to add to this, I think it's easier to understand how conditions of poverty or economic hardships can lead people to react in certain ways that may cause trauma for other people involved, like the saying that hurt people hurt people. But I think it can be more difficult for people to see and empathize with the same dynamic in say, rich and powerful men who exploit their workers or abuse their partners. So I think I would ask whether yeah. it's far-fetched to say that the people causing the most harm in our society perhaps also have deep traumas and wounds of disassociation from real community, from rooted connections to place, and from grounded orientations towards values of interdependence. And with that, I wonder whether there are ways to shift culture through more loving and empathetic approaches, which sees those who've caused the most destruction as those who actually are the most lost and those who actually need guidance and healing rather than punishment. And yeah, this isn't at all a judgment of the ways that various communities are fighting against and attempting to quash their own perpetrators of harm, but more so just a bigger picture question on our possibilities of interrupting cycles of trauma. <laughs> Oh, I'm really appreciating you. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, understanding a person's, in somatics, what we call their shaping, right? Mm -hmm. What's influenced them, what they embody, and the behavior coming out of that. So understanding their trauma, understanding their shaping does not mean that we don't want to address their behavior and stop harmful behavior. But to me, what you're really pointing to in your question is, you know, I've, I've been connected to and involved in transformative justice for a very long time now. And when I first started looking at basically non-state-based, non-punishment-based responses to violence and harm, it was through the lens of child sexual abuse. And uh, in the late 90s, we gathered about, boy, 350 people into different focus groups. Like the focus groups might be 10 people. And we were really asking this question, like, how would we end the sexual abuse of children within 100 years? How would we do that? What would we need to change? And it was amazing because, of course, it's very complex to go, how would we pull that out of really default cultural practice? And it's something that's already legislated as illegal, but that legislation makes no difference on people's behavior, right? But one of the things that was so hopeful, there were three of these focus groups that were just adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And over and over again in those conversations, people said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want this person 
picked up by the police. I do not want this person to go to jail. What I want is for this person to be able to transform. Mm. What I want is for them to stop that harmful behavior. What I want is for them to apologize to me. That's what I want. And there was something in that because I resonated with that too. That's what I wanted also. But this, and and even now there's um, a whole organizing project right now. It, it's called, it might be called Survivors of Crime. But anyway, it's survivors of people who've experienced violence, who are organizing to get rid of all the three strikes laws, because they do not believe in incarceration as a way to transform. Really, it's they're really wanting restorative and transformative justice. So yes, to what you're saying, like, how do we say we want the behavior to stop? We want to change the social norm and economy, patriarchy, white supremacy, mm-hmm. capitalism that keep training people into power over. But we want to we want to do that through organizing, policy change, change of leadership, right? All the ways that we do social change. But these people, we want to be able to hold a wide enough space for people who've caused harm to leave them their humanity, to support them in learning how to be accountable. And in some ways, bring them back into the folds of community in every case that we possibly can. I mean, when I look to the future, like what future are we building? I can say a lot of different things, but this is for sure an aspect of it, that we are cultivating love, accountability, humanity, and there's room and a place for folks to transform, particularly the people who do and have done harm. The last thing I'm going to say here, which is just a complexity, is, you know, not all people who have done or are doing harm are open to changing. And I just think we also have to be real about that. Sometimes the drivers inside of them are so deep, and we do need to make sure they are not in positions of power where they can continue harm. We do need to make sure that they are in environments in which they're not doing harm. And I don't mean an environment like a prison. I mean like a circle of accountability or a circle of support. But, you know, humans are complex. And when and how and under what conditions folks are really willing to engage in transformation, it's not actually the simplest answer. Yeah. Yeah. So the context of trauma and harm are really important. And also the context of healing and transformation are also critical too. And It certainly sounds like it's a lot more challenging when we're talking about people contributing to systemic harm that may not be deemed as uh, viscerally violent under the dominant lenses, but actually contribute to harm at such a wider and bigger scale. Or maybe people contributing to harm through the corporations that they work as a part of, but the corporations are driven by certain incentives that this human being, if left to act on their own, wouldn't make these same decisions. But when guided by the incentives of the corporation are enacting or contributing to harm through that kind of social construct of an entity. So... There's a lot more here. And I guess an uneasy question that remains on my mind is whether power over dynamics are inherently trauma-inducing. And mind you, this is uneasy for me because I do see domination as likely being traumatic for those involved. But I'm curious if there are more layers of nuance here because... You know, we've talked about how individualized trauma is collective and rooted in a lot of these power over structures and 
economics and politics. But even though all parts of our more than human world have likely also been traumatized and ravaged by our dominant extractive systems, it feels like a stretch for me to say, for example, that the domination hierarchies present in many other social creatures come from that. So, for example, we know that wolf packs or baboons or all sorts of other herd animals or pack animals or Mm -hmm. colony insects also have domination hierarchies in place just as a part of just as a part of their social function. And most of the more than human world operates more so under a sort of messy, anarchic non-structure, which is ever changing. And so Mm -hmm. there is collaboration, there's reciprocity, there's symbiosis, and there's also Mm -hmm. competition and there's domination and taking over. And yeah, and just also various land based cultures also have chiefs or kings and queens and leaders who exercise more power in certain areas than others in the collective. So I guess I just wonder Mm -hmm. if there are nuances within power over dynamics that we could unravel further, as in what leads some of such hierarchies to become traumatizing? And what is it that leads other hierarchies to? even be supportive of a community's collective functioning and well-being. And maybe that lies in how we define hierarchy and power over. I'm not sure, but I'd be curious to hear what you might add or point to. Awesome. I think when we're talking about power over versus power with, to me, maybe we could be more nuanced in how we talk about the exploitation of people and land, right? The exploitation of people and the earth and inside of exploitation, the profit extracted from the land or from the people is kept by a small few. I don't think all hierarchies run on that notion, right? So when I'm talking or when we're talking about power over inside of this conversation, I'm thinking much more about extraction, exploitation, and the concentration of wealth, power, and decision-making in a few people and the lack of agency for the majority exploited inside of that. So, and right next to that, I'm a person like, you know, I've worked in a lot of organizations. I believe in organizations and movement organizations, and I support all the experiments that are going on out there that are more flat structures. When I look at the organizations that I've, that I've operated inside of or worked with, there are hierarchies inside of those social and climate justice organizations. Then there is, you know, when I look at hierarchy or when I look at even skill development, like mentorship, we could say is a power over relationship, although Mm -hmm. there's choice and agency, right, for the mentor and the mentee, but there's a difference in capacity and competency, but passing on and uplifting skill and competency that's a big part of what we want to do and how we get to be developed and develop each other. So, you know, I do think it's unpacking what do we actually mean by hierarchy and then what do we mean by extraction and exploitation and wealth and decision-making and power being concentrated in a few people. That is traumatizing. That depends on violence, co-optation, and trauma to keep that kind of system going. But hierarchies, especially I think of them sometimes now as rotating hierarchies, mm. like how is there a ongoing leadership development where there might be a certain groupings of people in more leadership or more mentorship or more decision making, but those aren't permanent, right? And there can be a, a lifting up and leadership development of other people. Um, I've also been part of a co-op 
it took her a hell of a long time to make any decisions <laughs> inside of a co-op mm-hmm. structure. And I'm like, yeah. that's cool. And I felt like we could have been a little bit more effective and efficient had we not had consensus voting, right? There's a lot of decisions to make about how we operate as humans. But to me, this baseline of a principle of equity, a principle of the well-being of of our natural environment and the sustainability of our natural environment, that there is, I mean, God, we're like in 7,000 years of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. This is so old. (laughs) It's so deep. That has to go. It just has to go, right? As is colonization and white supremacy. So like the principles of interdependence, the principles of equity, the principles of long-term sustainability, the principles of cooperation, and just in my last moment here, you know, I, I often think of humans as this, like we, we're just this walking contradiction. Like the worst of us is the worst of us, like power, trauma, violence, domination. That's in our capacity, obviously. And then there is the best of us. We're incredibly cooperative. We can be incredibly selfless and generous we're incredibly feelingful, like we can feel the environment, we can feel each other, we can feel the vastness. And to me, it's a lot is like, what is the society and economy asking us to practice? What are we being asked to practice through social norms and through how our economic structures and our governance work? And to me, we want to keep uplifting the practices of cooperation uplifting the practices of interdependence, uplifting the practices of generosity. Now, truth be told, I think we'll all be a lot happier than two. Thank you for this. And yeah, it's definitely very important to distinguish hierarchy that is exploitative and extractive from different forms of experimental hierarchy that still ultimately is rooted in reciprocity and respect and collective growth and well-being. On this note, your book, The Politics of Trauma, helps people to identify, understand, and address the deeper sources of trauma, like their political, social, and economic roots, in order to bridge individual healing with social transformation. Why do you think it is so critical, especially for activists and change makers, to understand how trauma offers context as to how people, whether ourselves or those we're organizing with or those we're offering support for, respond to situations or our conditions? And what should we ultimately keep in mind about the relationship between trauma healing and the societal and cultural changes that we hope to see and bring about in the world? Yeah, beautiful. You know, when we're even thinking about strategy, like movement strategy or project strategy, it can be so useful to go, right, most of us or most of the people who were organizing have experienced either individual or systemic trauma. So that means there's going to be certain survival strategies that we can predict, right? So that fight flight response or appeasing. And if we don't address them proactively, they tend to act out on each other, right? Which then weakens and and makes our organizing less resilient. Another thing that somatics understands is there are, we are inherently resilient and we can cultivate that resilience on purpose. And when I think about like an 
a campaign or an organizing strategy. Like it'd also be great in understanding somatics, trauma, and resilience to go, okay, what what's the already what are the already resilience practices of 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 these communities that we're organizing? How do we practice that on purpose? integrate those things on purpose into our organizing strategies or into our campaign or into our narrative. So it's almost like much more deeply kind of knowing who we are and how we've been shaped, the communities we're organizing with, like who they are and how they've been shaped, and then how to work with these predictable strengths like resilience or reactivity from trauma and oppression that are just inevitably going to be in the mix, right? So that's one. Two is I think that just like political education or leadership development are such important parts of organizing, I think we should just integrate forms of healing or transformative development need to also be an inherent part of how we think about our organizing and social change work. So like there might be study groups for political education or speakers or a program people take together. It's almost the same thing of like, of course, we've been impacted by by trauma and oppression. So let's proactively learn resilience building practices together, learn ways we can sit and be in support of each other's healing, learn how to become less reactive based out of our trauma and, and, and oppression and more responsive to our visions, our strategies, the totally natural conflicts and differences that are going to come up when we're working together. So I'm just such a fan of like, let's weave in all these pieces to serve our our broader visions for change, because they're going to come up anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, for me, I just really feel like learning all of these things can support the growth in our capacities for empathy and strengthen our movements by lessening the chances of maybe internal conflicts becoming implosive rather than generative or harm even being perpetuated rather than disrupted and transformed every point that they could be within the movements. Because yeah, yeah, there are a lot of difficult dynamics and hierarchies that aren't necessarily healthy either within a lot of movements made up of people from all walks of life. So I think yeah. yeah, this is definitely really critical learning for everybody. And while we're nearing the end of our main conversation here, the last thing I wanted to weave in is there's a lot of burnout for people on the front lines of community defense initiatives or resistance movements or labor organizing and so forth. And this is totally understandable given everything we just discussed in terms of the yeah. broader context of trauma. It's often those mm-hmm. who carry the most weight from collective trauma and generational trauma who are standing on the front lines of systemic pressure, creating Mm -hmm. cracks and leading paths towards other ways of being. I wonder if you see this kind of sacrificial burnout as being inevitable and therefore different people just have to cycle through being out there, burning out and then tapping in and tapping out. Or otherwise, what are some practices people can engage in to embody the change that we wish to see more deeply in terms of our very personal healing and well-being as well in ways that can also support our how so that we're not self-destructive in this process, but maybe even doing things in ways that are life-enhancing for ultimately growing our senses of safety, belonging, and dignity. Totally. Totally. I don't see it as inevitable. I see it as understandable. 
given our conditions. And while there's billions of dollars, I mean, how many new billionaires were there during the pandemic? It's heartbreaking. Our movements don't have that kind of budget. So I also just Mm -hmm. want to go like, the more resourced we are, the more resourceful we can be, and the more we can resource people. So it's all interconnected. But I, I, I want I want to start with that. But to me, this integration of going, so in in somatics, we kind of look through these through three lenses. Like we we really look to cultivate somatic awareness. Like what am I noticing in my senses? What am I noticing in my emotions? What is the aliveness that's moving in my own soma, in myself, in my body? What what's happening in there? Right. So growing somatic awareness. And then we have this this orientation again towards somatic practice. Like how can we be practicing? What can we be purposely practicing either individually or together that helps us live and lead in the ways that we want to, okay? And then the third part is somatic opening. And that's really more of the deeper healing piece. Like how do we take these patterns that are lodged deeply in our tissues in our thinking in our in our emotions and how do we unwind those soften those and get to process those through so we're not carrying around or compartmentalizing these patterns and then acting from them so what i see is that there's a lot we can do with folks on the front line and the organizations that support them right cuz mostly those frontline folks are in organizations there's a lot we can do around, again, not only going, okay, what are our, what's our strategy and tactics in organizing, but to say, cool, let's all be in a practice of somatic awareness. What are we all noticing? Let's be in purposeful practices that are about knowing what brings each other resilience and that we say, good, as a team, we're going to literally practice resilience at least once a month on purpose. We're going to take time to go do that. Or daily practices like we'll use, and these are in the book too, is like a centering practice, a practice that we call hand on heart or mutual connection, a practice of, is called a rowing practice that can help move stress and energy, that there are daily practices that folks on the front line and organizers can be in that help process stress, um, help build more calmness more responsiveness, less reactivity. So I think there's actually a lot we can do rather than just kind of running folks to burnout and then bringing in the next batch. But I think the organization itself has to support that. The organization itself has to bring in people that are relevant to that community to go, hey, here's some new practices. Want to try them on? I'll run a practice group for you once a week, right? Like bring in and invest in some of that other support so that folks have not just one more thing they're supposed to do in their spare time, right? But actually something that's built into the organization in support of folks on the front line. A couple of weeks ago, I was down in LA working with three organizations that do basically decarceration, anti-incarceration, and abolition work. And all three of those organizations are very concretely investing in embodied somatic transformation work for their staff, for their organizers, and like handpicking somatic practices that work for the folks that they organize. 
as well as integrating this orientation of trauma-informed and cultivating resilience into a lot of their campaigns and their organizing approaches. So folks are out there doing it. Folks are out there experimenting. And again, it's like, what of these healing or transformative practices most resonate with the folks on staff, with the organizers, and with the folks they're organizing and integrating those. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? The Trauma of Caste, which I just read and I was like, blew my mind. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? There are probably lots, but... <laughs> <laughs> I regularly do a centering practice and a two-step practice. And then really it's expanding out and connecting to what I call spirit for guidance. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? This is so specific. There's this um, this dojo, this training center that I was working in for four days last week, and there's this big sliding glass door on one side. And in between the frame of the door and the wood of the floor, about 12 feet off the ground, there's this little piece of grass that was growing. <laughs> right there inside. That was very inspiring for me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Stacy's work, you can head to thepoliticsoftrauma.com. And Stacy, thank you so much for joining me today. It, it was an honor to have you and just really grateful for this nourishing conversation. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? What a beautiful question. There's something about like, uh, how do we keep feeling for what's life-giving and following that, even when it might not make sense in our current moment. But I really trust that longing, that impulse toward what's life-giving. If you learn from or feel inspired by this conversation, we would so appreciate your direct support through a donation of any amount today at greendreamer.com support. As it stands, we cannot continue our show beyond this year. But if every listener committed to chipping in just $2 a month, we would be able to reach our fundraising goals in no time and be able to sustainably continue producing our podcast while remaining untethered to corporate interests. You can help us out also by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing your favorite episodes out with your loved ones. Our song featured today is Trust the Sun by Oro Pendola. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Simahali. 
Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Chain. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.